Well, good morning, everyone. And thank you, team. I really appreciated that ministry this morning. I, I, I think that Behold Him has become my favorite song of 2022. It's a really good focus on our Lord and Savior and the way that chorus goes from eternity past to when he dines with sinners and saints to the Alpha and the Omega draws our attention back to the Lord Jesus and who he is and why we are to behold him, the value of that. And certainly, it might seem to cheapen it now that I turn to Santa Claus. Um, when I ask you a question in the introduction this morning, what do you think Santa Claus looks like? I didn't ask if you think Santa Claus is real. I hope by now you realize the answer to that. But what do you think Santa Claus looks like? I think you've all got at least a few key things in the image of old Kris Kringle in your mind that makes a good Santa Claus. You know, this recently, my family and I went up to Sevierville and we stopped at Bass Pro Shop. I don't know if you knew this, but Santa Claus is there right now. And if you go to one of the back corners beyond the fishing tackle and gear, you will see Santa Claus himself sitting on his throne. And once you get there, you might notice what my family and I noticed during our, you know, stop and shop there, that there was a shift change in the Santa. So that the Santa that started out was not the Santa at the end when we left. You know, when we first got there, I was parking the car and my wife and kids noted that there was a Santa that was there that didn't really look like Santa. I mean, he was a skinny dude. He obviously was young. He did not have jolly, you know, puffiness about his face. His beard was obviously fake, if you can believe that. And he didn't know what the kids wanted for Christmas as he, they were going one by one to sit on his lap. After a little while, it changed, and the next guy, I kid you not, looked like Uncle Sai from Duck Dynasty in a Santa Claus suit, which ironically was a good fit for Bass Pro. Yet, while he was closer to the ideal Santa, he still didn't quite get it right. Everyone knows Santa is jolly, fat, older, with a twinkle in his eye, and the ultimate requirement for Santa is an epic white beard. I think that, in my mind, makes Santa Claus. But let me switch gears for a minute. We're, we're in church, and I'm not preaching, even though it's an Advent series, about Santa. And, and I do think that, by the way, there was a guy named Saint Nick, you know, a long time ago. And he was a good guy. You could research him sometime. He was well known for standing up for truth, even punching a heretic every now and again, which makes him a good guy in my book. But switching the ultimate gears, I think that a lot of times we tend to treat our, our thoughts of God much like we do our thoughts about Santa. You know, we, we tend to think of God in terms of this grandfatherly, kindly figure who sits on a throne, maybe has, you know, a big beard because he's ancient, he's old. But if we believe in him at all, it, it, I think people tend to think that God is very distant. Um, he's there like a grandparent would be that you can go and see. 
You could even climb up on his lap, perhaps, and tell him about your, your life, and he would just pat you and hug you and love you, and no matter who you are, and then send you back out to live your life. Um, I think if, if people have any view of God at all, and if they believe in him, and, and have a conception of what he is like, they might typically think of God as being a God of love. You know, if you ask people today, they don't typically, if you ask them if, if they believe in God, they won't say, well, yes, I believe that there's a very angry God out there. They, they would probably respond, yes, I believe in God. Well, what do you think God is like? Well, I just think he loves. He's a, a loving God. They, they may not, people who don't belong to the church, they don't, they're not Christians, they're not in Christ, they may think that we are not so good or kind or loving but they may still maintain this image, if they believe in God at all, that God is very loving. But if you ask them to really kind of flesh that out, what does it mean that God is loving? What does it mean that God loves? It's really hard for people to really spell out. They don't get much farther than thinking that it means that he accepts us no matter what and affirms us and blesses us on our way. But what we get to when we get to John chapter 3 is the truth about this God of love. It is true that God is a God of love. It's true that in Scripture, this, the Bible tells us that God is love. And we ought to think of him with that defining characteristic. But when we get to John chapter 3, verse 16, we reach what is often regarded as the peak of the Bible, the, the, the most familiar verse, the, the verse that people, if they can quote any verse at all in the Bible, they can quote John three sixteen. It's on posters at football games. It's on billboards on the interstate. It's what, if you went to a class as a kid, in church, you would have learned that verse. But in that verse, we have, and in the context following, the description of God's love that is so much better than the vision that the world gives. And today, I want to talk about the gift of love. In this series of Advent, the light of love, looking at verses 16 to 21 of John chapter 3. And I, I know that we will see that although we struggle to know the truth about God and his love, this text in John 3 tells us the good news of God's love and the son he has given to us from his loving heart. And we're going to look at three dimensions of that love this morning that are here in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21, to see that God is so much better and loving than we ever dared hope and that our imaginations haven't even begun to plumb the depths of this love that comes to us from God. Well, let's see first how God's gift of love displays love's extravagance. In John 3:16, love's extravagance. Let me read that text again, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Our text begins here this morning with the word 
for. And that links it back to what has come in this context. And what has come is a conversation. Jesus has met a man named Nicodemus. It's nighttime, very dark out. And Nicodemus is a well-respected leader of the Pharisees. And Jesus even calls him the teacher of Israel. So he's a man of some importance in the community around Jerusalem. And so he has come to Jesus, again, at nighttime, to interview Jesus and to try to figure out a little bit more about him. A lot of people have dismissed Jesus at this point because he was a kind of a, a backwoods, country-type person who was coming from the rejected region of Nazareth, and he's now interacting with people of renown, culturally sophisticated people, religiously informed people, and he knows more than them. He's smarter than them. He is wiser than them. Every time they've tried to trap him, he gets out of it and turns the tables on them. And Nicodemus not only has witnessed those types of things, he's seen Jesus do miracles. And he comes and he says, you know, nobody can do the things you're doing unless God is with them. And Jesus, knowing the heart of Nicodemus, turns the tables and says to him, you know, unless someone is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus responds directly to that. He doesn't say, Jesus, where is that coming from? I'm just trying to get to know you. No, no, that's the key element that's missing in Nicodemus's life. And John 3 is a conversation that Jesus has to help Nicodemus to understand that he is not born again, that his heart has not been changed, that his inner being hasn't been redirected towards God and away from himself. And until that happens, he won't experience the power of God himself. But Jesus loves this man. And here in the dead of night, as they have this interview, he speaks to him. And some people think that by verse 16, Jesus ends his dialogue with Nicodemus, and then John is giving some editing comments here. In my copy of the ESV, they've made a decision to take the words of Jesus down to verse 21. And I think that's what is true. Regardless, even if it was John commenting here, you know as well as I do, that's still the words of Jesus. So what we're focusing on here in these, these verses are words that Jesus wants Nicodemus to know and that he wants us to know. This for would have surprised Nicodemus in verse 16. As Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave. The world here is to Nicodemus that group out there that has nothing to do with the promises and the love of God. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus would say a few things about what the Israelites had heard said, and then he would say, but I said to you. At one time he said, you have heard it said to love your, your friends and to hate your enemies, right? The enemies would have been the world. That was the organized system outside of the Jewish faith that was organized against God. And yet Jesus is saying here, God so loved the world. Right? That would have been unheard of. On the one hand, this is geographical, that there is no region of the world left out of this scope of God's extravagant love. That far off 
Australia or far off North America from where Jesus was to Africa to the, the Russian area that we know now to Europe. All of it was within the scope of God's love. Those people were the objects of his special affection, not only the Jews, but also the world. But this word world so often means the, the wicked organization of all things and the evil intentions of the heart of man to throw off God and to have nothing to do with him, to make life work without God. That's what you can also see, and I think primarily see here in the use of the word world in John 3.16. These are people who are organized against God and trying to make life work without him. God loves those people. God pulls people out of that world because he so loves those who are there organized against him. We've learned in Romans this year that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he loved us. This is extravagant love. This is nothing like the love that we tend to know. When we express our love for someone, it's usually because that other person to us is lovable in some way. We like the way that they make us feel. We like certain things about them. We, we have an appreciation for who they are or what they can bring to our relationship. But with God and the love that he has for the world, so much that he gave, it has nothing to do with the object of his love. It has everything to do with his own generous overflowing, extravagantly loving heart. This is God's love. So in other words, those of us trapped in the world system, not running to God, not regarding God, not thinking of him as important for anything in our lives, God has a special love for us. So much so that he gave. What does God do with his love? He gives. The text does not mean that God loved the world so much that he could have given his most precious son. No, the text says God so loved the world that he actually gave up his son for the people in the world. This is the good news of the love, the extravagant love of God. God aimed his love at the world, and overflowed in the sending of the most precious gift that he had, his very own son. This is a hint at something that we don't quite grasp and never fully will, but can appreciate, that long before there was light or time, there was God. And God was Father, Son, and Spirit, needing nothing from us, needing no creation to validate him, but in perfect union within the Godhead, love reigned. And so what kind of love is it that came in the sending of Jesus? It's not a begrudging love where God says, well, you poor pathetic people, I'll, I'll give you something. No, no, no. It is 
the overflow of God's very nature and character. What poured out of him was the inexpressible and the exalting in and this extravagant love. Often I am prone, friends, to think of Jesus' sacrifice for me in terms of Galatians 2.20. It's a great verse, one I've committed to be a guiding verse for my life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I, I don't have an issue of thinking about Jesus loving me and giving himself for me. Because there's that connection that he made in coming to this earth and identifying as someone like me. Where I still sometimes am prone to misunderstand is in the relationship of God the Father to me. Sometimes I fear God the Father's part in this is almost begrudging, that he is stern and angry and only restrained from pouring out his wrath because the Son is somehow holding him back. But John 3.16 tells me and tells each of you that there's nothing further from the truth. It was the Father's love that sent Jesus for you. So much so that as he was rescuing sinners, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The Father in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. The Father is generous. He is extravagant in his love. And if there's anything that I could pause and just encourage you in this morning is that God the Father was not content to see you or anyone to go recklessly headlong into hell. God the Father so loved you that he sent his dearly beloved and only son. There's only one rescuer that he could have sent. He didn't send a hundred for the various people groups of the world. He sent one. There is one Lord, one son that he had. And he is enough to save the entire world. This is the love of God. The love that he had for you was such that he extravagantly gave. And he gave you all that he had. Well, we see the second point today, that in this gift of love, that love provides, love's provision. Verses 16 to 18 tell us that there is a benefit to us, a provision for us, if we believe. And that benefit, that provision, according to verse 16 and down to verse 18, is eternal life. God's love provides eternal life life. You know, eternal life is what kept me awake as a kid. I can still remember the ceiling tiles in my bedroom and looking up and trying to ponder how long eternal life would be. 
If you've ever, if you've ever tried that, you know that it is an unending exercise. I used to think that I would be able to get to the end of eternity, I was a pretty silly kid, and then figure it all out. But I would eventually just exhaust myself and fall asleep because that is nothing. You know, that, that you can't conceive of eternal life. We are time-bound people. Now, it's true that we will have a quantity of life that is eternal. But when Jesus speaks of eternal life, it's literally life unto the age. And it's talking about a life that is fitting or appropriate for a different age than we live right now. So in one sense, it is talking about the quantity of life, long, everlasting, but it's also talking about the quality of life. And I think that's what Jesus is, is hinting at here. More than he's talking about the length, he's talking about the quality and what this eternal life is. See, we so often make the mistake of thinking about living forever in very natural, human terms. We think about, you know, what makes life happy now, and we try to carry that out into eternity and think about doing it then. You know, getting together with family and friends for meals. You know, that's good. If the food is good, I could do that for a long time. I don't know if I could do that forever. You know, working, even if it's the best job in the world, you know, what would make that worth doing over and over and over again? You know, I saw this movie that was made back in the 90s about this guy who dies and he goes to this heaven that he makes himself. When he gets there, he can do anything he wants. It's like this big blank canvas and whatever he can imagine, he just gets it. Meanwhile, there is a hell, but the only reason that people go to hell is because they, they mistakenly put themselves there. But they can get out of it if they choose. It's a really bad movie. I'm not even going to tell you the name because I don't want you to go and watch it. But I just thought that is so much the perception of eternity if people think that they will live forever. That's not the Christian perspective. You know, the, the person who made that movie even says in an interview, he said, yeah, I read the Bible. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer. Um, and these are my views about eternal life. And if that's what he views, that's sad. Um, maybe you've not really thought about living forever and what's involved in that. You, you can't really live forever unless you are right with your maker right now. Unless you know right now what makes life worth living in the here and now. You see, God made you and me for a purpose, to live with him forever and to experience his love for us, to live in that love, to feel that extravagant, purposeful love pouring out of God constantly in an unending flow. Can you imagine receiving that? <laughs> Living in an environment where there's nothing hindering that. What so often stops it from coming to us here are the trials that come and our mis misunderstandings of God. We're blocked by demonic powers at times. We ourselves sin, and those things get in the way of our experience of God's love. But in the here and now, eternity is 
creeping in because of the power of Jesus. And at times it floods us and we realize that God is a God of extravagant, purposeful love. He's given his son for me. I know him by relationship. I have trusted in him. That is a, a hint of eternity. Just think someday, yes, we will have perfect bodies. We will be in a new creation, fully functioning the way it's designed. No predators, no sin, no backstabbing, no grief, no cancer. Just joy, love, fellowship, family, friends, music, food, beauty, and Jesus. Eternity is not a blank canvas that we get to create things. It is the dwelling place of Jesus. And when he came to the earth, he ushered in the age of eternity. Every time that he opened up somebody's eyes so that they turned from blindness to seeing, eternity entered in. Every time he cast demons out of somebody and touched them and healed them, every time a leper was cleansed, every time a person with a long-term illness was healed, every time a cripple who hadn't walked for, for 20 years could stand up and dance, that was eternal life coming in. And it was the time of eternity as Jesus walked on the streets of Jerusalem and Israel, opening up the lives of people to know him, to believe in him. And this is what the text tells us. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How can that happen? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. To believe in equals putting your complete trust into Christ, entering into life with him. Believing in is not just talking about assenting to some true things about Jesus. But it's believing that he is alive. It's believing that he has done what he came to do in his mission. His mission was accomplished. And paying for your sins on the cross and rising from the dead and ascending to heaven to sit at the right hand of God and to reign with the government on his shoulders as we learn in Isaiah 9. This is Jesus. And to believe in him is to move to him, to trust everything in your life to him. And it's not a matter of being a person who has perfect faith. If you ever had a question about, well, how do I know if I really am a Christian? You know, maybe my faith isn't strong enough. It usually happens when you feel like you're not being a very good Christian or some trials have come and rocked you and made you feel uncertain. If you've had those thoughts come to you, then my counsel to anyone who's talked to me about that um, is to ask you are, you, are you having, are you trusting in your faith so that someday you will be accounted as a person of good faith? Or are you trusting in Jesus? There's a difference. You know, I can feel pretty bad and I can know that I don't deserve any of these benefits of salvation and I don't deserve the provision of eternal life while still holding on to Jesus. 
There's a great difference. People of faith are people who hold on to Jesus. And earlier in John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus the story of Moses in the wilderness. And he said, there was a time when all those people got bitten by the snakes. And God told Moses to make a snake out of metal and to put it up on a staff and to hold it up. And if the people who were dying of the snake bites on the ground, writhing in pain, would just look at the snake, they would be saved. They didn't deserve it, but that was God's love for them and his mercy even in his judgment. You see, the people of the world, they don't believe in Jesus. They're already condemned. And if any of us do not trust into Jesus and love him and know him, believe on him and what he's done for us, then he doesn't condemn us. We are already condemned. You see, the snake, though, was lifted up for condemned people. Don't let that cast you out or kick you down. Look to Jesus like the people looked to the snake, and you will be saved. The provision for you could be eternal life. So I pause here to ask you clearly, have you trusted in Jesus? Not in your faith, not in the amount of your trusting, Have you trusted in Jesus, the Father's Son? You say, well, who do I trust? God only has one Son, and He sent Him. His name is Jesus. He is the Lord and Savior of all who believe in Him. Believe into Jesus. How can you see yourself, though, in light of your great need? If you don't see yourself automatically as someone like those snake-bitten people dying because of their own foolishness and idolatry, how can you see yourself in the right light and to receive the grace and the gift of God's love? In the final point, we see love's light. Love's light. And the last verse that was read in our Advent reading we read verse 19. Look at that with me, John 3, 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, my parents took me to Mammoth Cave. I talked about that one other time when I preached here. Um, what I remember this time was a particular section called the Rotunda Room where the guide turns out the lights. You know, I was very young, and there are not a lot of vacations that I remember as a kid, but I remember that time. You know, the guard, and and consider, this would have been back in the 80s, before people could pull out their cell phones and turn on the lights and stuff. You know, at best, they may have had one of those old Timexes where they could have, like, the day glow. You could look it up sometime, figure out what that was. But this is, this is an era when, when the lights were out, they were out. And then the guard goes on, the, the, the tour guide goes on to talk at great length about all the things that the, the original people who explored the caves would have experienced, darkness being one of them, and how there were even criminals down there at one time. And then I start to think in my mind as I can't see anything and wondering if I still have eyeballs, you know, what kind of things are around here in the dark? I can't even see my parents anymore. I mean, dark. 
like that is dark. If you've never been down in a cave, try it sometime just for the experience of what it's like to have all the lights turned off and, well, I mean, go in a place where you can legitimately get out of, all right? I'm not encouraging you just to, today, drive to a cave and get lost in it. That would be really bad. I would feel responsible for that. Go to Mammoth Cave or go to some other place where you, where you know you can get a tour. But have the lights turned off and you can experience what it's like to be put in absolute, almost absolute darkness for a short time. Nobody likes that. You know, our bodies need light. Here in the wintertime, I get weary with these short days. And I'm eager for February to come, even if it's colder, because the days are going to start to get longer. I'm ready for that and eager for it because I need the light. But spiritually speaking, we don't like the light. All right, it's, it's intriguing to me that by nature, how we're made, we can't live well in absolute darkness. We need instead the light. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, sadly, the verdict on people is that we love the darkness. God loves this dark world that we're living in because the people like us are trapped in it and he desires to set us free. But when the light came into the world, the light found that people preferred the darkness rather than the light that God provided. You know, it's intriguing that light appears five times in verses 19 to 21. Look at verse 20. It says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now, that's an effect of what the light does. The light reveals things. It exposes things in the deepest recesses of our hearts. You know, this is what the light of God, Jesus, does in the life of someone who will come to him. He shines the light. You know, there's a rapper, Shylin, who wants... He said, Jesus is not in the limelight. He is the limelight. And when you come to him, he shines into your very inner being and reveals some things there that are very uncomfortable for you and me to bring into the light. But verse 21 says this, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, this text doesn't tell us how to abide in that light. It just tells us that when we bring those inner parts of us to the Lord, the the parts of us that we would much rather remain hidden, and we come into the light and we reveal them to the Lord, that there's a transformation that takes place, that our, our inner being starts to align with what God is doing, and our desires are to walk with God in faithfulness. Our desires are so that what is inside of us can be changed, and it can be verified that, yes, we want this work to be done, God, but it can't be done by us. It can only be done by you. 
You know, the, the reality of the light is that it reveals both that sin that's in us, but it also reveals the one who can take that sin away. It really always, every time does. So if you fear that light today, remember what we've been learning. Isaiah 9-2 told us, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The light came as a baby. That's what Isaiah 9 told us would happen. That's where all those names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Eventually, Isaiah foretold almost 700 years before Jesus came that the light would come in as a baby. The one who existed with God the Father when light was first created stepped down to bring light into this world. In John 1, 4, and 5, we read, In him, that's Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. See, this light is not just bright, it is warmth, it is life-giving. This is Jesus and who he is. The light shines, we read, in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is good news. No matter how much darkness is in you, my friend, or in me, it cannot overcome the light and the life-changing love of Jesus Christ. It cannot. All the darkness in this world. What happens if one candle is lit in the rotunda room of Mammoth Cave with no lights on? If one candle is lit... Does all that darkness in there smother the candle? No. The light reveals what's in that room. It's not going to be a great light, but that light significantly begins to push back the dark. Jesus entered into this dark world as a light and walked and healed, saved, challenged, corrected, rebuked, and loved every time more lights to come on into his kingdom and eternal life to enter into the people who previously were walking in darkness. This is Jesus and what he came to do. So much so that he says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is his promise to those who are considering him, who are following him, who are getting to know him and experience him in real life and in real time. He wasn't just a baby, but he grew up to minister and to lead people, to awaken them to the light, sharing with them the illumination and the warmth of life and calling them to follow him and giving them eternal life and solidifying that by dying on the cross. Jesus said in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So let me ask you now, are you living in darkness? And I don't mean the darkness of Mammoth Cave, but the darkness of hidden sin and the darkness of pushing God out of your life. The judgment that falls on each of us is that 
in the face of God's extravagant, sacrificial, unwavering love, we'd rather have lust or things or reputation or anything other than God. This is the judgment. We have loved darkness rather than Jesus Christ. So how do you respond to the light right now? Well, Jesus shines from this passage into your life today. Look again at John 3.16. It's worth reading again and again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For some of you here, living in spiritual darkness, not having come to Jesus Christ, not having believed in him. You can genuinely change today. You can be born again. You can come into the light. You can believe into Jesus today because Jesus gives you that provision and he calls on you to trust in him. Will you do that today? Will you be saved today if you are not? I'm here to talk with you. Jake's in the back. We've got Neil here. We've got others who are ready to talk with you. Don't leave here today if you have not come to Jesus in faith and belief. But for many of us here today, while we are not living in spiritual darkness anymore, we need to once again draw near to the light. You know, R.C. Sproul um, said in his commentary on John that we are not as followers of Jesus, trapped in the darkness anymore, but there's still something in our hearts that prefers it to walking in the light. I think that's true. Now I just want to, I want to encourage each of you to draw near to the light. Fear, preoccupation with this world, the darkness of sin can still pull Christians back in. But when we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Come to the light today, fellow believers, for a fresh cleansing by Jesus' blood. Those who have been exposed to the light in genuine relationship with Jesus are not afraid to come back to him. And note that it does not say, come into the light and believe in order to be loved. It says, God so loved that he gave so that whoever would believe would have eternal life and not perish. God begins always with his love and grace, and it's no different for you now as a believer. Draw near to his love and his grace for a fresh cleansing of the blood of Christ and know that he will continue to love you cleanse you, and help you to follow him. That's true of all of us here today, whether it's some great sin in your life or whether you've been prioritizing your own life and work and business rather than God and his word and way. Come back to the light today. So friends, as the third candle of Advent burns, remember that the light of the world came in to love and to show that love 
John 3.16 reminds us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you because you loved us first. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. We ask that you give us faith to believe. We ask that you help us to walk into the light. Lord, we ask for a reminder and a taste again today of the joys, the extravagant love and pleasure of eternal life. And grant that those who are in darkness and do not possess that life, that they would come into the light today to believe and to know. Help us to walk in the truth of who you say we are. And help us to believe what you say about your love. In Jesus' name, amen.